Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with Xfinity XFi. Plus, you'll get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway. That's a $72 value per year. No other provider offers this. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. The kind of old-fashioned cop who preferred working the streets and making arrests to taking tests toward promotion. He was the closest thing New York had to a dirty Harry. This is One Tough Podcast on the OG Podcast Network. Here's your host, Bo Deedle. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. I'm joined here, as always, with Carlo, the producer. Good morning. Today we have with us a good friend. And I say a good friend because we've done a lot of work together in the entertainment field, not in the other field. And his name is Jonathan Gilliam. Jonathan's a former Navy SEAL. He's actually an FBI agent, FBI special agent, federal, I can't even say it, federal air marshal, and uh, he was a cop, too. And he's also a best-selling author, and he's a Fox contributor when I was on there. And uh, Jonathan, you're a very interesting guy. You have more jobs than a friggin' Jamaican. I know, I get bored easy. Yeah, well, welcome to the show. Let's talk about Jonathan. Where'd you grow up, John? I grew up in Arkansas in the Ozarks where uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, I mean, this is really truthful, where um, Dog Patch was where the, the Beverly Hillbillies were supposedly from. That's the, the little Abner cartoon series. And I literally grew up in the Ozarks in that area. And what state would that be? That's in Arkansas. In Arkansas. Yeah. Did you know Bill Clinton then? I didn't know him, but no, no, I don't, oh. I don't run in those circles. Oh, okay. And I don't think that's what's interesting is that there's, um, like everything else, you know, Arkansas has its elite, quote unquote, elite group of people, and they are the ones who uh, basically um, set the standard for politics, and uh, those are the people that knew Bill Clinton, but I, I didn't know. But I will tell you this, um, I always ask this question of people. Uh, you know, especially if they're Clinton supporters, I say, how many people do you know that have been murdered or died of a violent death? And most people don't know anybody who's been murdered. They, some people know somebody who's committed suicide or this or that, but one maybe, right? Well, the Clintons know over 60 people who've died or committed suicide, right? <laughs> very, and two, very mysterious and situation. Two, the only two people that I honestly know that have been murdered is Kevin Ives and Don Earl, the two boys that were found on the railroad track. I used to eat lunch with them every day in high school. Wow. Well, I don't know if you heard that story or not. But no, the, I, I yeah, wanted. they they supposedly this was during the Barry Seals days when they were running the, the oh. drugs through Arkansas. There was yeah. a movie made about that. Yeah, well, this Bryant is not far from that area, and these two uh, teenagers got up to go hunting one morning, and um, the next thing you know, uh, before school, because it's Arkansas, kids go hunting before school. Yeah, and uh, they were found on the railroad tracks uh, after a train had ran over them. And the medical examiner, who was corrupt as all get out, the sheriff, who was corrupt, uh, they all came to the conclusion they had smoked dope and passed out on the train. And, uh, on the train tracks. Yeah, which was absolutely not true because they weren't dope smokers and they were, uh, they were just they out there They did toxicology in the body? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't even know what they did. Yeah. I, they just kind of rushed the whole thing through. Yeah. But here's the thing. Uh, last year, I think it was, uh, a guy who used to be with the uh, WWE um, was a wrestler 
said that he was there when it happened because he was <coughs> he was helping run drugs for the Clintons. So, wow. it's, but it's something that never came out. It's kind of conspiratorial. A lot of things didn't but, come out about the Clintons. But stuff never. That's the thing that stuff never. And it never comes out. And as you know from being in law enforcement, for as long as you have evidence, you say, okay, man, if we just had this evidence, we could uh, accuse this person, or we could uh, get a charge on this person, or if we just had this evidence, we'd say we have nothing on them. Well, that doesn't happen in the real world. But in their world, they say. If we just had this evidence to show we were innocent, all of a sudden it just pops up. Well, I Correct mean, we, me if I'm wrong, but yeah. with those two uh, young guys in Arkansas, wasn't it later confirmed that there were knife wounds on them or something like that? Knife wounds, and one of them had been shot, I believe. <laughs> and they said he got hit by a train. Yeah. I guess the train had a knife on it and a gun, too. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, like even we just did a big, a big case of triple murder of a federal uh, uh, witness was shot dead along with his wife next to a triple murder. And the guy who did it was an airline pilot for uh, American Airlines. And we had him locked up boarding a plane. And it was a three-and-a-half-year-old case. And the ballistics with a Glock gun, uh, because we have people who know about firearms, mm -hmm. they never tested the Glock because they said, well, there's no rifling. But there is another initiative on a Glock. When you when the firing pin hits the, the uh, cartridge, that's an image that is same as a rifling or same as a fingerprint, and lined up with the guy's gun. Right. He was arrested on trouble of murder. But there's a lot of cases with the advent of technology now. We could bring those kids back in. We could do tax, toxicology of the young boys there, find out there was no marijuana in their system, obviously with the wounds and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of these cases, what, 60 people dead around the Clintons? I'm, I'm, I'm ready to fall off my chair. I mean, it's true, though. How many of you, okay, you were a detective, so you dealt with I was murder, a homicide detective, but, yeah. but when it comes to you yourself personally, your friends, you, we just don't know people that have been murdered, committed suicide, or died a violent death, right? Well, Foster they, shot himself like six times in the head or something? With no blood. You know? <laughs> the, the whole thing is just very – and nobody ever asks these questions. It's We don't have a media anymore that digs into questions. No, and, and a lot of people don't know, and it, it's never came out in the media – for veterans, and uh, thank you for your service, yeah. uh, veterans, they passed the bill, the, uh, the, the Veterans Choice, where you could go to any doctor, any hospital, and they forward the bill to the VA. And I'm very proud to say I gave Donald Trump, before he's the president, that idea. I said, Donald, veterans are getting screwed over. Why do they have to go to the VA administration hospital when they get treated like crap with these punks that work there? Why can't they go to any hospital, any doctor, send the bill to the VA? Yeah. And that got passed. Never, ever did you see it in the news media. Donald Trump, President Trump, said to me in front of Lindsey Graham and all these billionaires a few weeks ago, Bo, you gave me the idea, and veterans should thank you. But my point is, this is a perfect example of nothing making the news media. Did you know? A lot of veterans don't even know. Now you have Veterans Choice, where right. you can go to any doctor, any hospital. You don't have to wait four months for the scumbags in the VA administration hospital to treat you like a piece of crap, especially our World War II veterans who are left, and our, our, our Korean War veterans, our Vietnam veterans go through PTSD and all that. Now they can go anywhere, and they can just give them the card, and the bill gets sent to the VA. We're taking care of friggin' illegals from from all over the world, giving them health care. Why wouldn't our veterans have a higher level of medical treatment? No, but, but they're yeah, absolutely correct. But they're still the VA still plays games. 
Um, last week, and I haven't done tremendous research, but I've been called by two different people in the past night. Yeah. Because uh, this week, uh, most veterans got a letter saying that, um, I, and I'm not even sure exactly what it was, but it had something to do with sharing our information, and you can opt out of it. But most people, and you only have three days to respond, and most people didn't get the letter until after the date. Wow. So nobody They're has, playing games again. They're playing games. So now they're but going to start sharing. But you know about sharing. these VA choice, Veterans yes, Choice? And, 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 a lot of people don't know, including veterans, don't know, but I tell them. Yeah. And they go like this, really, Bo? Here, here's the thing about Trump that I, that I absolutely love. And I, I, like you, I was a Trump supporter. You know, I host for Sean Hannity on the radio. Yeah. And... Yo, Sean's a very close yeah, friend of yeah. mine until I got caught up because Roger Ailes, that I stuck up from, which he was my right. friend. I don't turn away from a guy when he gets in trouble. And to, to my dismay, these little two uh, two brothers there, Oogie and Sugi there, the, the Murdoch's sons there, two jerk-offs, they don't want me to be on their show. You know, they, they could kiss my ass. <laughs> I don't want to be on their show. Good. Well, I... Um was supporting Trump even before he came on his radio show. I was on his radio show saying that I would vote for Trump and I would recommend that people do it because he's the only one up there with operational experience and not only building buildings and succeeding, but somebody who also failed in business but then came back and succeeded. That's the one thing that Democrats never talk about. Four years I know, Donald. I want somebody who has failed, not somebody who has a golden ticket. And that's the thing. Everybody always says, you know, uh, his father gave him this or gave him that. Oh, no, he went down hard. But he's gone down hard and he's come back. He came back and he's a tough negotiator. He owed me money where I threatened him, some security money. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to smack you in the head, Donald. I said, you can't do this to me. He goes, well, I'm Donald Trump. I said, well, when I hit you in the head, after that, we became friends. I was at his <laughs> wedding, his son's wedding. I love Donald Trump. He's a little over the top, and lately he's getting really over the top. Yeah. He doesn't understand people, the, the, the majority of people are pussies, and they yeah. hate to see a, a, a guy like you, yeah. a guy like me, a tough personality, because they don't have that. So when they see Donald being so over the top, yeah. they get scared of him. Well, that's the thing. I think you're hitting on something here is that, um, like the veterans issue, here's a guy who goes in and he sees, okay, th- this you know thing is broken. How, how do we fix it? Well, he's not looking ideologically how do we fix it or or how do we get most votes when we fix it. He just says, how do we fix this, yeah. right? And that's what I, I really love about him. But he exists in an environment that is so swampy that – No one can understand. He – I don't think he understands. This is where I think the one criticism – I could sit with him in front of him and say, Mr. Yeah. President, here's the deal. You know, th- this is a plastic cup. I'm going to drink some water out of it, right? It does the trick. You put water in it, it's plastic. I put yeah. it in my mouth. It doesn't cost much. I'm not worried about it. But our president is a man who likes the best, right? So he's going to want a, the finest crystal uh, glass that he can get and, yeah. and because he can afford it. But Washington, D.C., it's the opposite. You don't want the crystal uh, glasses because those crystal glasses get passed around D.C. and they come with a lot of baggage. These people like Comey and Peter Strzok, or let's just leave Peter Strzok out, but let's look at Comey, Mueller, uh, all the guys who, uh, Brennan, these are all people are Washington, D.C. retreads. And I don't care if it's a general, an admiral, or a deputy director, or a somebody who's a, uh, a political appointee that's just been around D.C. He needs to get away from those. Those are not what he needs because they're the Washington, D.C. people that know everybody. Yep. He's going to continue to have the same nonsense right. out There's there. There's a reason why they have approximately 
1,800 uh, lobbyists in Washington yeah. sitting around taking out these uh, congressmen and senators and giving them to whatever their whatever their feelings are that they like and contributing to this and that. My point, you hit, you hit a good nail on the head, but also the fact that, you know, I was with the president about five weeks ago when he talked about one specific thing, and you don't hear about it again. South Korea is under the threat of North Korea at all times mm-hmm. to be a missile attack. They have a defense system that that is now around South Korea. How good is is it when you got thirty thousand artillery uh, uh, things ha- aiming at you? You can't stop at all. Right. But the president said he asked his generals, "Well, who's paying for this shield? It's five billion bucks." He goes, "We're paying for it." Why are we paying? Well, where are the allies? Wait a second. Mm-hmm. The threat is coming from North Korea. South Korea has a better economy than America. We're not paying for it. If they don't want to spend the $5 billion, we're not paying for it. Sure enough, the South Koreans paid. These are perfect example of, you know, practicalness right. using practical. Another like Obama would never think of doing that. Obama would never think of going after NATO and say, wait a second, you got all this money, we're protecting your ass? And even with Saudi Arabia, my thing with Saudi Arabia, I've been there two dozen times, I don't speak from not knowing what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, they should be paying a big friggin' bill. Big, big, big bill. Yeah. We protect them against Iran, and we protect them against a lot of things. The president sees through that. You can't kiss people's asses and and just expect that we're going to pay for everything. But but here's the thing, they these people. Look, you worked in New York City for a long time. Yeah. I was here as an FBI agent for eight years. But everybody that I worked with, uh, whether it was on the uh, criminal side or organized, uh, or excuse me, on the um, JTTF, I, my partner was always an NYPD detective, right? Yeah. So I learned how things really are in this city. And it's very similar to Washington, D.C. You know, they don't do deals in Washington, D.C. to uh, find effective solutions. They do deals that prop up their ideological stance or put money in their pocket. And that's that's why you see the, us giving so much money away, because here's the, this is the reality. I learned this from Benghazi. They may say we're going to earmark $500 million to go over there secretly or whatever to go over into a country to fight a war. But the reality is only half of that actually goes there. From what my sources say, other over half of that type of money will come back through certain donations or whatever wow. back into the political stream here in the United States. So, you know, for instance, when we give Iran – for whatever reason, over a billion, well, it was over a billion dollars. No, no, $150 billion. But there was cash that came in a plane. Unmarked bills. How in the hell is there a justification with something like that? There's no way, from an investigator's standpoint, when you look at that, you should automatically say there is got to be something nefarious. That money has to be coming back to the people it's being allotted to in some form or fashion, at least wow. part of it. Because why else, in what environment have you ever worked in New York City, in all these criminal areas that you've worked, where somebody says, yeah, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you a loan for this, but they're not going to have a 20 or 100% interest, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're paying, they're giving them money, but they're giving it in unmarked cash. <coughs> that's going to come back somehow, and they're going to benefit. And I think that's the way you know, NATO and North, uh, South Korea and all these different groups are, and that's why they don't fix problems like the war on drugs or North mm. Korea. 
I, I tell you, if I was if I would have been elected when Trump was elected, I would have been bombing North Korea as I was swearing in in Washington D.C. I would just ravish North Korea. I'm not saying that's a realistic thing, but the, the bottom line with this is that when we look at our NATO allies, quote unquote, and really we're the ones who fight all the wars. When we look at the politicians in D.C. The president has to start looking at the, the in his next term, God willing, that when he puts people in a position to advise him and puts people in position to run these cabinets, that he says, I need this cup because this cup is going to solve the, the problem. I'm thirsty. I'm going to drink it and I'm going to set this aside. And it's going to sit there until I'm thirsty again. He needs people from the bureau. Deep inside, good agents to run the bureau, not Christopher Ray, who's never been, you know, Christopher Ray, Comey, Mueller, uh, Rosenstein, these, all these people, Barr, they all go to the same churches together. They all run in the same circles. Their wives are friends. Yeah. And so you put them in these positions and they're going to do the same thing. That's why when we look at Comey and McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, uh, uh, Mueller himself, all these politicians, all these media people who allowed this investigation to go through against Trump with the Russians. Yeah, well, you why talk about with the Pfizer warrant. Well, if we did this, right, if we conspired yeah. against uh, an election and against the president and we were being investigated, you know what, this would be considered a conspiracy. For, you know, right. And we would be all be investigated together as a criminal enterprise. But if I look at Bo and I say, well, Bo just made some phone calls. He didn't really do anything. And, and you just um, carried a briefcase. It wasn't really anything. And this guy leaked information. Okay, that's okay. Maybe it doesn't sound like you did a whole lot. But when you put together a conspiracy and you yeah. show that they, they were actually organizing their crimes for the furtherance of this overthrow, those people would be going to jail for the rest of their lives. And it would be, that's a real case. That's a conspiracy. Now, I just, I still question, where is this elusive IG report that's supposedly well, coming uh, out, coming out, coming out so, for the last, it's like uh, six months, it's coming out. Where is it? Because so, that report should be a direct link to what you're just talking about. Okay. So let's look at that. Okay. There's a thing in the government called an SESer, right? Senior Executive Service. Yeah. Let's look at the NYPD. You know the NYPD real well. You have the super chiefs, right? Yeah. Nobody's going to touch the super chiefs. And the super chiefs, they kind of exist in between politics and law enforcement. Right. Some are good. A lot of them are not. And so what happens is, especially when you get somebody like de Blasio in, the ones that aren't good will suck up to him. Oh, and, they, and so, so no that's one what has balls. Well, so we have what's called the senior executive service. And these individuals are, they are Washington, D.C. plants of the deep state. If you're the president and you say, I want this policy, and that deep state or that senior executive service member doesn't like you, he'll say, roger that, and then they will go sit on that until uh, you're out of office under and, the, not, and not do it, right? Not do it. So therein lies the problem is that these individuals that, that exist at that level uh, are doing things that don't allow this president to function properly. And they, it, I think it's clearly evident that they've conspired in many different directions together to hinder him or even hurt him or overthrow an election. And when we look at this IG report, if you were doing a case, right, this was your case. Yeah, that right? would have been done a long what, time ago. Would you be writing a report or would you be crafting uh, a court case? You mm -hmm. see, you would be crafting 
uh, with a, a U.S. attorney. This IG is probably or, the or same the as Comey. The IG That's probably is in bed with them. He's a senior To executive. me, my big question is, what the hell are you taking so long? This is not rocket science. If, if it, I investigated this, I would go right away. And you've gone for warrants like I have yeah. when you have that probable cause for a warrant to get a warrant to eavesdrop and all that kind of crap when you were in the FBI and all that and when I was in the NYPD. The point is, you can't go there and lie and swear to a warrant. And now it's that is the smoking gun of smoking guns. You never had the, the you never had the credence to make this warrant happen. That is not maybe it's not gray area. It's black and white. Right. And also you don't sit. OK, you have all this evidence on these people. You wouldn't sit back and say, we better wait for the U.S. attorney to write a report on that guy and not really investigate anything. I got what you, you say. See, so that doesn't way, make any in sense. In other words, it's in the same slush pit. And probably this IG is right in that slush pit. There's no other answer to it. There's as no, far as I'm guessing. And that's what bothers me about Barr and the rest of these people is nobody is saying, hey, hold on a second. Why are we writing a report about that guy and then writing a report about that guy? Why aren't we writing a report? Or, or just sitting down with the attorney general and saying, we've never had this in the history of the United States where we literally have politicians, media, and top executives in our government and other governments who are conspiring. Why aren't we having a full-blown trial? Like they, in the 50s, all these people would be sitting in a, in a courtroom uh, Yeah, but tried. I mean, and even look at with President Trump being elected, I was there at his inauguration. I think you were there, too. No, I didn't get to go to that. Well, I was there. <laughs> and the point is, at that point, we had a Republican Congress, a Republican Senate. We had all the capabilities of doing a lot of good things for this country. But you actually have Republican assholes, senators and Congress people, that don't want to change what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And what he's talking about, I'm seeing more and more because it's advent is that we don't hear anything of anything good happening. Everything is negative. And then the president's getting so frustrated, which you saw yesterday. He says, this is total bullshit. And it is total bullshit as far as what they're doing with this conversation on the phone call. Now we have a, a leaker who gets hearsay and is able to put together a whistleblower complaint. It, it doesn't make any kind of sense. So so here's what that's exactly what I'm saying. They won't go after people where we see evidence and we know that they've conspired, but yet they will go out of their way to collect hearsay in order to go full-blown against the president as though he's a criminal. Right, and a perfect example, and I hate to bring it up, I mean, Biden, it came out of his own mouth. He said if you don't get rid of that prosecutor who's prosecuting my son, you are not going to get your billion dollars aid. You got the, you got the, you got the smoking gun and the gun. Yeah. And, and it's just like, oh, well, what did he mean? It's very direct what he meant. It reminds me, do you remember that Saturday Night Live skit where they were doing a skit on 60 Minutes? And uh, I can't remember the comedian's well, I name. Did, but it, supposed to be Rather, Dan Rather. Yeah, you? but the, the guy's uh, smoking a cigarette and he's like, uh, I, didn't, I didn't say that. What are you talking about? You said that. I didn't say that. And he's all nervous and sweating. That's exactly what they do. Yeah. The Democrats will say, oh, no, it wasn't me. You did that. And I'm like, no, no, you did that. No, but you're talking, (laughs) what are you saying? It's so important because 
right there. You got it coming at it publicly. And he's bragging about how he was able to get rid of that prosecutor on his son. Otherwise, you're not going to get pro. What's that word? Quid pro quo. That quo right. pro shit. Yeah. I mean, it's all there, right? <laughs> right. And it's, it, but they, they will just simply look at it as like it's a Jedi mind trick and say, you didn't see that. <laughs> and they they do that instead of a hand wave like the Jedi's in Star Wars, they their wave is media sound bites. They will take five politicians and do a thousand media uh sound bites and when there's ten of Joe Biden and they just flood the airways. And you know what's crazy about this, Bo? What? People don't even question it. It's like no, they've been it's programmed. Just, yeah, like they like it just they blank it out. No matter what they see, they blank it out. They'll blank it out. Now, you know, John, you're here on the show, and I'm very honored to have you here, but you have a foundation that you've built. Now, obviously, you're, you're now in the media and, and doing Hannity and yeah. all that stuff, Fox with me when I was a Fox contributor and all that all stuff. All the, the Hannity, uh, um, when he used to have all of us on a panel. Yeah. Uh, that was fun. I had to save Joe Takapina. I had to save <laughs> Joe Takapina because Joe's messing with John. And he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I says, I turn around. I says, Joe, I ain't protecting you on this one. You're on your own. <laughs> the and also, Joe, looked at me, Joe looked at me and I said, look, I like John. And yet you're the boy there, the other big boy, <laughs> Navy SEAL. I said, um, Joe, you got this by yourself. So <laughs> oh, calm freaking down. That but, night there was a, a Army Ranger right behind him. And then another SEAL was yeah, on the, the panel. Yeah, big kid. That big yeah, kid. Yeah, but the, the thing is about those panels, it reminds me of Washington, D.C. It was. It wasn't who knew the most. It was who talked the loudest. Yeah, who? And you who, would get that night. You had him and the girl who said that Corey Lewandowski grabbed her and pulled her to the ground. I forgot what her name is. It was a total BS. But I was the I was the uh, I was Switzerland. I was the neutral country. They well, nobody to, would stop. Those two would not stop talking, no. and so nobody could get anything. But, in but going back to you, John, yeah. because you're my guest here today. A lot of people don't know your real background of yeah. everything and why I was so honored to have you're a Razorback. That's right. A Razorback. You know what a Razorback is, Carlo? Yeah. That's the, of, uh... that's the Arkansas. Did you play football? I did not. I went to, actually, I went to the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, but anybody from Arkansas is a Razorback. We believe in Arkansas Razorbacks. The problem is Razorbacks, no matter how good of a first quarter or first half of the game they have, the, the second half is always horrible. That's just the way that's maybe tradition for this team. Maybe they're drinking or something. I don't, know. I don't know. But then you became a cop. Where were you a cop? In North Little Rock at Camp Robinson. Uh, how just, old were you a cop? Oh, it was just very, very, very short period of time. And then you touched upon, you joined the Navy. Did you go in as a listed guy? Or no. Uh, so what happened was uh, in 95, when I, 1995, I graduated college, and I have a degree in political science and psychology, and I could not get a job as a cop anywhere. Because I wrote, when I was, um, I think I was 20 probably, maybe a little younger, but right around 20, I wrote, I took a piece of paper, and I wrote a line on it, and I put now, and at the other side I put death. And I wrote down everything that I wanted to do before I died. And uh, so one of those things was I wanted to be a cop. And I wanted to graduate college. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college. And I wanted to be a cop. I wanted to go in the Navy, and I had all these things on there. And uh, I could not get a job with Little Rock Police Department. I went to Fairfax County in, in Washington, D.C., but it was during the Clinton era. And they just were not hiring white educated males for police. And I remember going through in Little Rock, I remember going through the physical fitness test and there was a girl there that couldn't even run one lap around the track when we did our physical fitness. She got on and I didn't. And so I'd already applied for all these other things. 
And when I got the job at Camp Robinson Police Department, I was very honored, a very small place, $15,800 a year, and a 33,000-acre police, uh, uh, excuse me, National Guard base, and uh, a lot of stuff going on in the surrounding community, some rough areas around there. So we were involved a lot with uh, transients that would come through there. But it was it were interesting because you didn't go through police academy until they had a slot open because it was a state officer. So you were put on the on the, on the job. Boom! Not, I got sworn really in known, by yeah. I got sworn in by a judge, and now I'm patrolling and with a with a training officer. And so I really learned a lot very quickly. But the bad thing about it was it just gave me the the taste of what being a cop is all about which was only very few places in the United States, Arizona being one of them where you can still be a true cop and yeah, not have to worry. Certainly not in New York City. No. So what happened was um, I was there for about, I don't know, five months, and I got a uh, the slot for um, a SEAL slot for officer. I got an officer slot in the Navy, but it was with a designator uh, to go to BUDS, which is SEAL training. So It, it actually came up that way because I know OC, yeah. uh, OCS, right? Yeah. Oh, that's the officer candidate. Officer candidate school, but my my oh, you actually had the slot for the SEAL as the OCS for I SEAL training. That. So yeah. that's, that's that's the thing. Yeah, you can be. What you'll do is you'll go in with a designator that's going to take you to just like pilots when they um, take the test and they swear in. They're they're going to officer candidate school or they're going to uh, uh, through OCS or whatever. And we're designated, this is our slot. So when I went to OCS, there was a whole time, there was like five of us there that were designated for BUDS. Out of all of us that went to BUDS, all everybody but one guy made it through. Uh, but and, How many and, guys went in for that? You know what BUDS is, Carlo? Um, basic underwater. No, well, you know what it really is? I don't. I would like to hear about yeah, it. It's, tell it's them a little, let, let my it's young a, man there know about the, why only one guy goes. How many went up for it? Well, we started, my, my uh, class actually started with approximately, I don't know, 140, 150 people. 140, 150, one makes it. Well, no, uh, no, this is out of the entire class that we started with day one of BUDS. 21 made it and only 11 graduated with the regular with the original class. The other guys got recycled for various reasons, but then graduated. Wow. wow. Um, you know, the reality is uh, with SEAL training is that it is where they metaphorically peel you open and let you look at your own soul. And when you do that, in so and give, of itself, give a call a little insight of what buzz. So this buzz isn't even is. this isn't even hell week, right? This is just a normal day. You wake up at about four o'clock in the morning. Um, some guys, you know, they take a shower in the morning, get ready, and wake up slowly. I've never been that guy. Me and me and my uh, roommate, we would literally sleep in our uniform. Did with you our, wipe your ass at least? Well, yes, but we oh, would. Okay. When it comes to showering in the morning, we would just literally sit up, put our feet in our boots, not brush roll. your teeth even. We may rinse with uh, with uh, mouthwash, but we had to be out there. Trust me, listen, every second of sleep that you can get matters because what's coming next is about 18 hours of pure torture. This, 18 hours, Carlo. Still, we're still at, at about 4.15. We muster up outside. We jog uh, about a half, a half mile down to where we do the physical training. We're standing tall at 4.45 when the instructors start to walk in. And it, in San Diego, it's not like New York. There's always a nice breeze. Excuse me. I love San Diego. I've been there many times. It's, oh, yeah. And all year there's a nice breeze, down, especially on uh, where we are over on Imperial Beach. And it in the mornings, in the evenings, or at night, it's, it can get down into the 40s. Sure. And in the daytime, it can get into the 70s, sometimes the 80s. But in the winter, it rarely, rarely gets above 65 to 70. So – 
we're standing tall, 445, the instructors walk up, and everybody, they just tell us, get wet, or all officers get wet, and we got these little boats sitting up there with ice cold water, so we got to get in those, or they tell us, everybody run to the beach and come back. The beach is a quarter mile away, so we got to run down there, get wet, come back. Yeah. We haven't even started working out yet. Five o'clock, we start working out. That goes for maybe two hours. Then we jog. Carlos sleeps till like nine. <laughs> okay, keep then, going. then we jog a mile and a half to go eat. Now we're eating, right? And then we either go to the pool or we'll jog a mile and a half back. Then we go to the ocean. We'll do like a two-mile ocean swim. Uh, we'll go from there to the class. They'll give us a short class about something. Then we'll go to the obstacle course. We'll be there for two hours. We'll jog another mile and a half to go back to eat, a mile and a half back. And then we run with logs on our heads for two, three hours. We'll take the, the boats and go out in the surf and do surf passage with these boats that weigh 300 pounds on our heads running out there, turning them over, coming back, getting blasted by the the the, uh, the sand in the ocean. We come back. We'll do another class of some kind, maybe inside, maybe outside. And then eventually, after doing calisthenics and some other stuff, we will. And this all, in between all this stuff, you know, they're picking you out individually and hammering you for something that you did wrong or you didn't do right. want to see if you can handle right, it. Right, sure. And so now, they, was there a height requirement, so no little no, midgets? There were, no, it's very – we, we have little guys, and that's called the Smurf crew. Oh. And what sucks is that, you know, inevitably you have guys between five, six, and six foot three. You don't really get many people who are that much taller than that. And but so – smaller than five, six? I think we've had some – I don't know how short the shortest seal is, but we've had some smaller guys that are ruddy and, and just incredible athletes. Uh-huh. Uh, my, my good friend, Stuart, I won't say his last name, but he works for another agency now. That guy was Jamaican. He's white, but he's – I think Stuart's probably like five six, five seven. one of the most gifted natural athletes I've ever seen in my life, this guy. he His swim partner was an alternate for the Olympics team. Wow, wow. Melville's just some guy. But so let me finish off by the night. So we then jog, we then jog another mile and a half to go eat, jog another mile and a half back, and then any night ops that we have to do, we're training in the water. Now we're out there doing that, treading water for, I don't know, it could be four hours. So your day consists of how many hours? It, by that point, four, we'd go until about eight o'clock at night, from four in the morning to about eight o'clock at night. Wow. Then you get, then you got to go home, prepare your, or you go back to the barracks, which you got to jog back to there. Um, maybe we do a four-mile timed run, or they'll do something throughout the day. Uh, ultimately, you're running nine to thirteen miles a day and swimming two to four wow. miles a day. That doesn't include the beatings. Then you got to go home, get your what gear and the stuff. Beatings. Well, you know where that's when they're trying to tweak you or you know tune you up a little bit. Where you know you're sitting on the beach. Uh, they're making you get down the lean and rest position for. I've been in the lean and rest position for over two hours. That's where you're in the up position in a push-up for over two hours. Wow. And they're they're putting sand on top of you, seaweed, making you do sprints with your entire body covered with seaweeds full of flies. Um, that's, so that's called beating. Or they're making you run to the ocean and come back, go roll in the sand and come back. And then it could be a personality defect. So now, course. after I told you that, yeah. now you know why even having five minutes extra sleep matters. So you set your boots down there at the end of the night, you get clean socks, you get clean uniform, you lay down on your bedroll that you've rolled out, and you go to sleep. And when the morning comes, you sit up, put your boots on, roll that up, put it in your locker, and you're outside. Wow. Now, when you begin, when you finally fit, finish Buds, how yeah. long is it actually? Well, they say it's, it's six months long, but if you get there early, which I did two months early, now you're in a rotation phase where you're just getting beat every day and you're running every day for, for two months, and then you uh, class up. So I was literally there – 
for ele- probably 11 months I was there. You know, my old friend Castiglia. Yeah, he was, a he was in my buds class. Well, his dad was my partner up in Harlem. He's something else. I mean, he's guy. something else is right. Uh, uh, Artie Castiglia's son. Oh, he talks like this. Yeah, 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 from East Harlem. <laughs> and uh, the thing is that, so now you get, when you finally graduate, what do they put the wings into you? What do they do? No, you, you still don't get your trident. Uh, the, all in all, it's about a year. Because then you would yeah. go through, we went through what's called SEAL tactical training. Now it's SEAL qualifying training, SQT. Uh, that lasts another, I don't know, four to six months. Then you go to your platoon. You, it, when you're at your platoon, actually, I shouldn't say four to six months. It was 13 weeks for us for SDT. I don't know. It was SQT somewhere around there. But then you go to your platoon. If you're in wartime, it may be sped up a little bit. But for me, it was a year workup with my platoon. Now, I got when I got through with SDT, I, that's when I got pinned with my Trident. Um, and that's also when You know what I, a Trident is, right? right? Yeah. yeah. The Navy SEAL insignia. When you get that, brother, that's big. It's big, and you get it pinned in. And, and my luck was the day I got pinned. Do they um, actually pin it into you? Well, that's what I say. There was I would everybody see the way the team rotates is part of the team is out training, part of the team is deployed, and and then one or two platoons will be there. This was one of those unfortunate days where everybody was there, and so they had the ceremony. They put it on me. They only put one of the backings on the back because there's three prongs. Yeah, and they only put one of the backs. I should have brought that down. Next time I come on here, I'll bring it down so you can see it. So uh, the that's commanding a, officer, the, the, the sticky, the, the pin that's sticking right out, in yeah. your skin. The commanding officer pins it on me. And what did he pin on you? How did he pin he it? Just, he put it right here. He put the little pin on there. He put. It, he didn't. He the commanding officer. This is the captain of the navy. Yeah. So he puts it on. He says, "Congratulations, sir." I said, "Thank you, I sir." I thought they racket in you. The master chief then says, "Congratulations, sir." I said, "Thank you." And they're standing right to my right. And the first three guys that walk up, they're nervous because the commanding officer's right there, you know, and they're like, uh, and they're like wanting to punch me where the where this uh, trident is. And they shook my hand. They're like, um, "Congratulations, sir!" And they're like, so then finally, about the fourth guy that came up was a senior guy had been there for a long time, and uh, he said, um, "Commander, Master Chief," and he looked at me. He goes, "Congratulations, sir!" and just punched me as hard as he could right in the chest. The Master Chief puts his arm around the commanding officer. He goes. Come on, uh, sir, i got to talk to you about something inside. They just walked <laughs> off. Now I'm looking at, like, I don't know, there's like 50, 60 guys, and all of them just weighed me. Oof. And then they took me inside, and then the three guys that didn't get to hit me before, and now they hit me, and then my platoon, you know, uh, tuned me up a little bit. So all in all, by the end of the night, I was Your very, bruised, must have been very bruised, happy as can be. Yeah, well, going yeah. through that. So now when you become a Navy SEAL, did you do any operations uh, as a Navy SEAL, because yeah. eventually he becomes a FBI agent that he gets involved with some major investigations. But as right. a Navy SEAL, did you do any operations? My stuff, this was before 9-11, so my stuff was in Central South America. So what we were doing is called, and every SEAL hates these, but they're FID missions, Foreign Internal Defense. And we were down, uh, as you know, when you hear the media say advisors are in country, we were the advisors. Well, like, like my friend Hanson. Big Hanson, Navy SEAL year. Yeah. You know, Hans, Dave yeah. Hanson? Yeah. yeah, he was going to come work for me. Right. And then he told me, well, he's got like 27 kids or something. <laughs> and he lived in Staten Island. And then he goes, Bo, I want to come back. I want to go back into uh, the, the SEALs. And uh, they did that movie, uh, the uh, Valor. Oh, he said, yeah, uh, Act of Valor. Is he Act the guy that's in that? Yeah, that okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Good. But uh, so now you did some shit in, uh, in South America. Yeah, I was in yeah. every country down there and in, in, in a lot in Colombia. Columbia, a lot in Honduras, and um, you got to see the reality of what's going on down there. One thing I tell you, one thing that reflects well, what on me. What was your mission down there? 
we were teaching their special forces um, how to operate as a team, but also how to do counter drug and Was counter narcotics operations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So they, you know, they don't know how to do over the beach uh, operations. They don't know how to do. Um, uh, where we take down ship takedowns, that type of stuff. Were you working in conjunction with the DEA guys? We do, but not that much, as much as we should be doing. Um, you know what works against us more than anything is politics. That You know, we were in Honduras. Honduras has more, at that point in time, more murders than they than they have in the Middle East by far. Now Mexico, Venezuela, and Honduras are all the top three down yeah. there. But um, I, the, the ambassador wouldn't let us carry weapons um, we, when we got there, we had to lock them up in the armory. And uh, as far as they thought, we, we locked them up in the armory. But um, <laughs> we, you know, it was really stupid. I mean, I, it was, yeah, well, these are political. And again, politics, all of SOCOM, which is South America, Central yeah. South America, at that point in time, whatever bean counter uh, decided, because uh, they have to have armored vehicles for the yeah. embassies and for the mill yeah. groups, they said, um, well, Let's just save money and only armor them up to nine millimeters. So people in Honduras walk around with AK-47s all the time. They could have shot all of us, killed all of us in all these vehicles that we're driving. So now you're you're in the Navy SEALs there. And what made you leave that? Well, I was – so I wasted too much time trying to be a cop when I got out of college. It took years for me to get that job at Camp Robinson. So by the time I got into the Navy, and I also left out there, I went to Ranger School while I was in, while I was waiting to go in my platoon. So I also have a Ranger tab uh, that where I did a cross thing with the Army. Um, But the way the federal system is fixed is that if you go over 35, you can't go into federal law enforcement, right? It's done. There's a cutoff age because of retirement. Even with the the military budget? No. So that's where I I wish Trump could fix that because we, you know, when you're in, you're wasting all that incredible talent. Somebody goes over and they, let's say they're 40 and they retire from the military because some guys do 20 and they're 40 years old. They get out. They cannot go into federal law enforcement, which would be the greatest, smartest experience. Look at look at hostage rescue team for uh, FBI, right? Filled with non-operators, people who've never been in the military. And uh, and so what happens is those people end up getting in charge, and they don't recruit for people that have been in the military. All those people could do twenty years in the military, retire, and then come into the FBI course, and go best, into a tactical. And be they would be the best experienced people they could have. Unbelievable, but they but that's they don't so do that. So then you leave the military. But. I, so I leave the military and went and went straight in. The air marshals opened up is what happened. Yeah, and because nine eleven happened, and uh, we weren't being used. That's the only reason why I got out because we weren't being used. I wasn't the most politically correct officer. I should have never been an officer. I should have been enlisted. And you and I have you know that in common. I, I say what's on my mind, yeah. and that didn't work too well when I was in there. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be a high-ranking officer. Um, uh, we're not being used in this war at this point because we weren't. Yeah. And uh, because then it was it was taboo to use seals to do operations because if you lost a seal, then media was going to get a hold of that. It's going to be big news. So I said, you know what? I'm going to get out. I'm going to jump over to the air marshals and then go from the air marshals into the FBI. Had you taken the FBI uh, background at all? Yeah, I'd done all that stuff. Oh, and, so you were but like they just, of- But they weren't, uh, for some reason, my file was just sitting there, and they weren't doing anything with it. And the air marshals opened up, so I jumped, and I said, okay, I'll do this for, the for a For the time being until you get called. Well, yeah. so I did that for about a year, and it was <coughs> the most horrendous job you can ever have. I sitting mean, on a frigging plane. Yeah, it was terrible. And so um, – Another company called AMTI, which is no longer exists, uh, was a consulting company and a security company that was owned by Norm Carley, who was uh, 
Richard Marcinko's yeah. executive officer when he started SEAL Team 6 and Red Cell. And so we did a lot of Red Cell stuff. So I went to work for them, and it was like being back in the Navy. For three, almost four years, every day I went to work with these guys without the politics of the Navy. Mm-hmm. And we were able to do amazing things. Doing Where, th- where were you? In what country? Virginia Beach. Uh, is where we were, but we worked all in, in the United States for Homeland Security uh-huh. doing the threat assessments. So we would come and we would do what was called um, uh, uh, red cell uh, roundtables where we would go in, we would look at a facility that was deemed a soft target, and we would tell these people, if we were going to attack you, this is why, historically, who would hit you. This is uh, where we would do it, when we would do it, and how we would do it. And these are the vulnerabilities we would exploit and the avenues of approach we would take. Mm-hmm. And so um, – the problem with with it was that it wasn't we, we couldn't say you need to regulate this or you need to change this. They could do whatever they wanted. We would just be there, just advising, just advising yeah. them. So, but it was an incredible experience. Amazing guys. I look forward to going to work every day. But then the FBI called and uh, my application was there, and they said, "Why didn't you follow up on this?" I said, "Well, I never got called from you guys." And they said, "Okay, let's take a look at it." And then uh, six months later, they offered me to go in the FBI. And so I had to make this decision. You know, I have this great job, these great guys, but you were making, but I want to do this pinnacle, you were making better money in the private yeah. sector than what the FBI. Would so be. believing what many young people believe is that this is the pinnacle of law enforcement. This is where I was meant to be. It's where I planned to be when I wrote out that timeline. Yeah. I went in and it didn't take very long before I realized, man, there are some major issues because the same thing I saw going on in the air marshal program mm-hmm. was the same thing I saw in the FBI. And at that time, Mueller had just uh, been there for a while, and he had systematically – and this makes a lot of sense now – he had systematically changed the FBI from the premier law enforcement agency to the premier domestic intelligence agency. And most people don't mm-hmm. remember that, mm-hmm. right? But that's the case, and that's what they did. So we, we used to sit there and laugh like – when I was on some of these squads, because we're like, who's getting this intelligence? Because we're not getting it. Who's it feeding to? Because it's not helping us any with our yeah. cases. Now we know. You know, it's a deep state, really, more than anything. So wow. I was here. Uh, I went to um, the organized crime side of the house and worked with uh, the OC guys from the NYPD. I was never on Italians, so don't come after me, <laughs> Italians. But I was on another another group and um, did that for four years. Amazing work. I learned how to be a street cop. I learned, uh, you know, how the NYPD works um, on a criminal side, and it was it's just amazing. The, these guys, we, the we techniques. had a great police department. Back yeah, then. the techniques that I learned. You know, when I was in the Navy, we would never do surveillance if we were surveilling a target. You know, from literally across the street. But mm-hmm. in New York. You you may not be able to go. You see them from a block away. Yeah. So I remember when I first started in, in the bureau and we're doing some of my first surveillance. I had these big binoculars and I'd sit, you know, quarter mile away, like seeing if there's anybody moving in that house. And finally, one of the detectives said, "Dude, listen, get in the car." <laughs> I got the. I drove right up, parked right across the street, sat back, relaxed. Nobody even gave us a second thought. Um, so they taught me how to think outside the box yeah. and how to follow people. Um, how did, you know, how we, when we lose somebody, how to find them again, yeah. um, which is incredible the way that they, these guys do it. And yeah, eventually yeah, also had the advent of the helicopter too. Yeah. Yeah. That too. But eventually what I started doing, which is pretty funny is I, uh, I asked my boss, I said, you know, uh, I have an SUV cause I had an SUV at the time. Actually, I actually had the, the best vehicle I ever had in the bureau was this just shitty old Ford minivan that nobody, it just looked like any other crappy it, it minivan. It fits right into the and city. And so I would bring my dogs with me to work every day. 
Yeah. And I'd put them in the back of the, uh, the minivan or the SUV that I had. And I literally could get out. I don't care if it was the biggest murder in the, in the world. With your dog I could walk the- up like I'm picking up poop and, and I could get a license plate. I could get anything. And, uh, and so they became like a mainstay of our surveillance where I could yeah. get out with them and do that stuff. I don't know why more law enforcement agencies don't do that type of stuff. It's but- too, too, too smart to do. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden you're in the New York. So you worked out of the New York office during yeah. that time. And then we, we remember, I remember distinctly about with the, uh, the Times Square, uh, attempted bombing and all that. Right. You were involved with that cape, but too. Yeah. So what happened was my goal when I got in the bureau was to to learn the street and to learn. I don't know if you've noticed about me, but when I see big pictures, right? So when I went in the FBI, I had a I had a plan of where I wanted to go, and um, so I get there and I I wanted to learn how to work the street, how to be an agent, but eventually I wanted to work my way over into what's called the special events unit, which sounds goofy, but the reality is. Uh, it was done wrong. They were all jacked up. But what it really is is where we go out and do the threat assessments and the operations orders, and we coordinate with NYPD and Secret Service and the FBI. And when the event happens, I'd be the guy there that's the coordinator for all that stuff in case something happens. Something happens, yeah. So um, I was the guy running the uh, New Year's uh, of 2010. And then when Faisal Shahzad put that bomb there, I literally, I never forget it. I was sitting because it was Valentine's Day and I was sitting on my couch and I'd already had two Corona lights. I like Corona light Mm. and the, the fire department. And now after being here for 15 years, you can almost read what's happening in this city by the way the fire department is responding. In this case, it was all horn, no siren. Mm. And it was a a panic in that horn that I'd never heard. I mean, but it was, it was like, get out of the way. And they were just going and going and going. And then another one and another one. Uh. And I'm like, I was in my second beer and I'm like, I better put this down and see what's happening because it's my job to then go respond to whatever. And then call in the forces and say, this is what we have. So I call the, I call in and I find out what's going on and they say, can you make your way down there? I said, yeah. So I get in the vehicle with another agent who was coming there who was on the, um, bomb squad. And uh, there was already one FBI agent there working with ESU. And when I got there, we get out, we walk uh, right into Times Square. I was the second agent there. And uh, they NYPD had already had it completely evacuated. Off, yeah. um, and then two things happened. So the bomb was on, I think it was on, it was right next to the Marriott, whatever street that is. And where the, um, the, uh, the scroll for the, uh, NASDAQ is mm-hmm. right. That's where they had everybody yeah. standing. And, and this was my first experience with, uh, politics when it comes to this stuff. First thing, and I won't say the chief's name because I don't, I don't want these chiefs ever mad at me. And it was an oversight, but I, I'm like looking around and I said, um, and I shouldn't ask the chief, but I did cause I'm stupid that way. I said, chief, has anybody checked these, um, garbage cans that are everywhere to see if there's any, have they been cleared? We're all standing around. There's garbage cans everywhere, and the halals are all over the place. And he's like, I'm, I'm assuming that they, they have been. I said, okay. And I watched him turn around and say to somebody, hey, have these been checked out? And they're like, uh, no, chief. And he's, he just freaking flipped. He's like, get these freaking things checked. <laughs> yeah, they got okay. bombs in there. Nobody moved. We all just stood there. Then the mayor, or let's say the, the special agent in charge of the bureau, the mayor of New York City, it was uh, Bloomberg, and the governor, the blonde guy, uh, he wouldn't have seen anything anyway. Uh, he come, they all come down and they have a press conference right there. 
I literally, Bo, could see the bomb. I could hit it with a rock. And it was 250 pounds. We probably killed or injured all of us. And they had a press conference right there. And they could have been another uh, a detonator. And there could have been bombs all over the place. All over the place. So yeah. that was my, you know, here I was doing all this stuff, threat assessments, planning for it, looking for it, trying to determine and predict where it was. And then when it happens, everybody comes down there, and I'd never seen actually what happens from that point forward, and I was astounded. Everybody the, wants to get their fucking puss the, on the TV. The investigators were trying to figure out what this yeah, is. Yeah, we still don't know what you got. Stay the hell out at, of at here, At the same Jerk time, off. they're having this. So fast uh, forward a little bit, and uh, Captain Sullenberg lands his plane on the water. Yeah. Again, I'm sitting on my couch. Because it was lunchtime, and I had... Greatest miracle of our lives. The couch? And, no. <laughs> no! Sullenberg. I, I'll say it over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Over and over again. Greatest miracle I, I observed in my lifetime. Now, okay, so then when did you get involved with the FBI overseas? Well, I so personally, I never went overseas with the FBI, but what I did was I coordinated uh, when Benghazi happened. I was the what's called the uh, Rapid Deployment Team Coordinator. So I coordinated all the agents that went there. And, and strangely enough, they only had 13 hours. 13 was a really weird number that 13 hours, how long the thing lasted. And then when the investigators went over, they had 13 hours to investigate. That's all. That's it. That's all they gave them. So they went over a team of HRT uh, to do security. And then we deployed a mixture of NYPD detectives and agents. And I outfitted and coordinated that deployment for those guys to go over and do that men and women to go over and do that. investigation. For that short period of time. I go way back into the 1990s uh, with a lot of the agents. My friend, Johnny O'Neill got killed in yep. the world trade center. And then Tom Nicoletti former, uh, but a, a Navy seal from way, right. Back. Right. Tommy was still one of the toughest guys I ever met. Uh, 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 Tom Nicoletti, and, uh, you know, when during that time when they were in Pakistan, when the four Americans got killed, they were investigating that. They were involved with the bin Laden task force. Then also when they blew up the uh, embassies and the coal mm -hmm. and duh, we put it together that this Abadabad, six foot six Abadabad do was behind. They asked for permission from Shake and Bake. I got this directly from John O'Neill. They asked uh, Janet Reno, this Shake and Bake bitch who was the attorney general, they wanted to take bin Laden out. They had their eyes on him with the drone and all oh, and that. Clinton. And it's son of a bitches wouldn't let him take this Abadabba do out. We may have never had a 9-11 if they had the authorization. They, again, bureaucracy bitches wouldn't let them take out bin Laden when they had their eyes on him several times when they could have taken him out. Yeah. You know the story. I mean, oh, yeah. This ain't just bullshit. Yeah. This I got directly from the guys that investigated those four Americans that were killed in Pakistan yeah. and all that. And they, they, this is another fuck up with our, uh, our intelligence and with our, you know, if you sit back and you wait, you're going to get smacked. And like today, and I say it every day, a complacency here in New York. We're coming back to New York. It's going to happen. It's going to happen again. I think they want it. I think they want it to happen again. I'll tell you why. Look at what it did for New York City. Everybody goes to New York City for for to see the Ground Zero and to go to Times Square and to have memorial and all this stuff. It they use the terror attack as a, a tourist attraction. Well, I, was, I, went, I went down there that day with my partner, Mike Zerval, and we were down there for a couple of days. And it, 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 to me, 
my eyes will never forget what I saw when those towers came. Now, I worked as an iron worker prior on the Twin Towers in yeah. the 60s, and then to see those massive towers come down, that's another miracle that I can't believe that they were able to put this whole plan together and take those buildings down. I mean, the way they built the New World Trader, you could hit that with a nuclear missile, they ain't going down. But the way it was built for aesthetic views, they had no real foundation of yeah. steel in the center. So those thick walls that we put in there, and then they had the little bullshit concrete uh, uh, reinforced rods, floors, it could never hold up that steel. And when that melted with that with that, that fuel from the jets that came down, it was like potato chips. Ba, 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 the ba, thing ba. about that whole thing that really puzzles me, I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy theory. Yeah. It's kind of weird how we used to talk about this is conspiracy, and that's now everything seems to be working out not really conspiratorial. It's actually the yeah. deep state and all this. But one thing that always, from a tactical standpoint, I never could understand, you're going to go do the most – and when I say impressive, I'm not talking about like, I'm impressed from them, but the, the biggest, most impressive attack. terrorist attack ever in the history of the world, yeah. and then follow it up with nothing. That makes no tactical well, there was, sense. There, yeah, there was follow up with London yeah, bombings. But, but, but listen, the, those were those were individuals doing things. There was no large coordinated well, attack when to you, follow when you that do up. What they did, I mean, you you took out. But imagine, imagine if they had continued forward, had operatives here, and then started hitting malls, started hitting children's facilities. I mean, they would have people wouldn't have known what to do in yeah. the city. Tactically, it never made sense to me. You do this, and then you stop. It makes I, no sense. I, I disagree a little bit with you. When you were able to pull that frigging thing off there, <laughs> you have a lot of time to frigging gloat, and you just took out. Well, they either did that. They either gloated, or there's more to it than we and know. And they were afraid, maybe, to. They, then they went buried, and he buried himself in Tora Bora, uh, that, that tall douchebag, uh, Bin Laden, and they were hiding because they knew we were coming, and we did come immediately yeah. at them. So at that point, communication ceased, and even if they had a backup plan, I would, if I'm Bin Laden, that scumbag, I would say, let's go to sleep with the freaking sheep and stay quiet because they're coming. Those Hellfire missiles are coming, <laughs> right? Yeah. So make a long story. So now you're an author. This book yeah. you wrote. Sheep no more. What is that about? The art of awareness and attack. What are you like that Chinese guy? What's his name? Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu. Are you Sun Tzu? This American? is the modern Sun Tzu for the for the for the uh, citizenry of this country. And when I say citizenry, I don't just mean normal everyday people. The way I wrote this book is all the stuff that we've talked about yeah. so far is that I've crafted a book that shows uh, people how to look at themselves from an attacker's point of view. And then turn around and use what they've understood from doing that to yeah. build better defenses. What this is it in, a, in the long and short. The the first half of the book, if you ever look at a, a tree and how the the trunk goes up and then it branches off into these branches, well, a defender and an attacker, and the process in which they determine uh, either how to attack or how to defend is the same. Should be the same. It's that trunk. You go up and you follow this uh, set of uh, steps in order to determine what your vulnerabilities are that could be exploited. And the only way a defender can actually do that is by looking at themselves from the attacker's point of view. Then once you do that, you can turn around and say, okay, I need to mitigate this vulnerability or, or uh, close off this avenue of approach. Uh, but you can't do that unless you've seen what an attack actually is, which is the culmination of information collection. 
Yeah. And then uh, who would want to attack you? What your criticalities, what are they going to look at? In a school, they're not going to go after the air conditioning. They're going to go after the kids. That's what they're trying to hit. Body count. That's the critic, those are the critical assets in a school. And then you have your critical areas, your critical times for those areas, which a perfect example for that would be a year or so ago in Nashville, Tennessee at 3 in the morning, a naked guy walks up with a gun and starts shooting people in a Waffle House. Perfect example of somebody who was even crazy and their ability that once attacked picks out a place that is critical at the time it's critical. Waffle House at uh, 12 in the afternoon, it's going to be busy like every other place so it doesn't stand out. But 3 in the morning, all the clubs are closed. That's where it's going to be busy. So even crazy attackers can figure this out. So what I do in the book is I show people in the first half um, how to divide their life up into sectors. You wake up in the mornings, you commute to work, you're at work, you commute home, so on and so forth. Each one of those sectors has an, a different attacker profile. Some of them may overlap, but overall, each one is going to have its uh, separate vulnerabilities that can be exploited, separate avenues of approach, and in some cases, different types of people that would attack you. And, and I systematically show you how to discover that, and then you can turn around and I show you how to build defenses and mitigation strategies. And now I have two workbooks, whereas the book is split up in uh, attacker and defender, and now I have an attacker which is a threat assessment or a target package workbook. And then once you fill that out, you can then take that information and build the defense uh, assessment workbook. Where, where can our listening audience find that book? I mean, they're on Amazon. Uh, any Barnes & Noble has them. And, and the, the uh, name of it? Sheep No More, The Art of Awareness and Attack Survival. And you're the author. I wrote it. I did the audio for it, too, which is, I don't know. Have you written Have you written a book? I've written three. You yeah. written, did you do audio for them? I didn't do no audio. When well, i, I got to get your book. I've never When read... I wrote my books, they didn't have audio. <laughs> well, now they do, and it is the most painful and excruciating thing <laughs> well, you could ever do. you know, and just to, then we'll segue out, but to talk about it, you know, things have changed. Used to be where you have someone shooting, an active shooter, used to be secure the perimeter. And then negotiate, my friend Frank no. Bowles, the old, uh, the old hostage negotiator, Frank Bowles, and negotiate. Now you got to get your ass in there, get your balls up, and take the guy out, because all they're doing is body count. Look at and Orlando. Long, yeah, and the longer they stay in there, the more people are going to be dead. So you got to find your balls. If you can't do that, don't take the freaking job, all right? If you got no balls, don't take the job. If you're not willing to put your life on the line, don't take the damn job. But uh, we're going to wrap it up now. This is very, very interesting. And how can, on the social media, people find you? They can find me on Twitter, jgilliam underscore seal, and on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and YouTube, Jonathan T. Gilliam. But I, I got to tell you before we go, uh, you know, having done all these different things and come here into New York City um, and experienced it as an agent working with NYPD and as, a, as just a person that lives here, um, there, New York is not like it used to be. It's changed tremendously, and it's all due in part to politics. The good people of New York have left Manhattan, and even places out uh, when you go out in Long Island, it's just changed. Uh, you know, I have friends who are teachers in Long Island. They can't do their job properly because they're conservative, and they're constantly threatened or investigated to be fired. I think it's time, Bo, that um, people do what you did. You know, you said, I'm going to run for mayor, and you took a shot at it. 
uh, which in this city, it, it, that's an incredible challenge. But people need to be standing together and moving forward in a conservative constitutional way. And that's the problem is this city and other cities around this country are crumbling. But at the same time, they control the vote now for federal votes because well, uh, that's just where the majority the of people perfect live. example, New York. I mean, New York, when I ran for mayor, they did not allow me to go either on a Democrat, Republican, or independent line. I had no line. They made sure this de Blasio had his general counsel and lawyers in the courtrooms, and they made sure that I could not because he was afraid of one person, me. Because the issues were very, very in your face and, and honestly, fixable. And, and, and if I could have been listened. But with that said, I mean, well, what's going on in this city now with the uh, police officers are out there where now they're passing a reform. I'm going to knock you off your chair when I tell you this. As of January 1st, this moron governor now has passed legislation for criminal reform. What that means is if you're a victim, say your lady or somebody's a victim of a rape robbery, they are within 15 days, they're going to be able to get your address. Any witnesses that you have in your behalf to the defense counsel, so you're going to have that address. Grand jury is usually secretive. Within 15 days, all discovery will be from that grand jury. So what we're doing right now is we're allotting this scumbag criminal to get every way and every that they can get to beat the case. Also, bail. We had 215,000 felony cases last year under this new uh, criminal reform signed into effect on January 1st. The only 10% will ever get bail. The criminal will be robbing, raping, and coming right out of jail. And then how many complainants are going to be there? You're going to give them my address? Well, look, I want to be a witness. I sure. You're going to give them my address? They're going to come after me. What good does any of this? Who's thinking this through and why? Why? Now, from an investigative standpoint, we have to ask, then the people should be asking, why do they do this? Why, why are they allowing felons to be on a jury duty? Well, right now, I talked about it on the radio show with Sid and Bernie on Tuesday, and I says, people don't realize what we're going into here. Yeah. This city is going to, is like a tinder and it's going to explode. And I carry a fucking gun all right. the time. But the reality is, if I end up justifiably shooting someone, they're going to lock me up. You're going to go before grand jury for homicide. And these kids are out there and they're scared stiff being cops. They got cameras, they're not got no support. Perfect example, that hero cop the other day, the uh, fellow there that chased that scumbag Brian down. Malkeen. Grabbed him into a headcloth, and he's trying to get the cop's gun. The, the guy who had the gun threw the gun, and then all of a sudden the cop shot him, justifiably. And then all of a sudden these other cops run. You know, when you shoot a gun, you can't take the bullets back. And I know from experience right. about killing people. Mm -hmm. Point is... You gotta, you gotta know what you're doing. Just because you hear shot fight, you don't run over there. There's an article in the, uh, in the, either the New York Post or the, uh, yeah, New York Post today from the wife of the other cop that got shot by friendly fire, and she goes and she said something, and she was right on. All everybody wants to be a hero. When they hear a, a shot fired, they pump shots, they get another medal. And I'm sorry to say, this is the fact. She says it in the, today's New York Post. What the hell are you shooting unless you know what the hell you're shooting at? Right. And unless your life is in danger. If not, take cover, size the whole situation out. Right. But by just firing off shots in the direction of an officer, that's Utterly ridiculous. Right. And I just, my insights come out that 
this cop was fired by, you know, was shot dead by his own people. And because I, they I, weren't I, shooting accurately. See, that's the problem. The NYPD is like every other police department. Yeah. People sign up for the right reasons, but then somehow politics ends up uh, guiding the training. And these, you know, it's so cheap now. Airsoft guns, they could be yeah, doing this type of training all the time. The, there was no need. For these other officers to fire the gun. The guy was dead already. The cop was on top. The cop shot him. He was dead. So it's just what, the dumbest thing. Just firing lack, bullets in there? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's lack of training yeah. and lack of situation awareness, which they don't teach anymore. Well, this is a very interesting segment. Now, what we do every week is we do our punk of the week. Punk okay. of the week means an issue, a circumstance, or a personal thing that you're really pissed off this week about. Mm -hmm. What is that? Hmm, there's so many things, but uh, I, I would think, you know, since this is big in the news, um, this impeachment thing or impeachment thing that's going on and this whistleblower and all stuff, I think people need to realize, Bo, that this country has been subverted, that communism is real. You can call it globalism or socialism or socialist Democrat, but it's real. What is happening in this country is that. It's twofold. The politicians and the media are one. There's no separation. There's no separation between the Democrat and Republican Party in a lot of ways. Yeah. And ultimately, what's happening at the same time is that young people have been indoctrinated to want to give away their rights. And the Second Amendment is the bodyguard for all of the rights. And what's happening now is I sit here and watch these interviews, and, and the people are saying, well, you don't need an AR-15. I'm, and I'm saying, well, AR-15 is my right. And if you look at the, the Second Amendment, the way it's written, you should want one, too, to protect yourself against a tyrannical government, which is circling us right now. Oh, you're totally and you know what they say? I don't even want it, my Second Amendment. We don't need it. Yeah. Let the government take care of us. Well, that's that, your... I think, is the biggest thing in the news right now is that the people in this country, and especially in this city, have been taught to be helpless, and they're comfortable with it. Unbelievable. Carla, what's your punk of the week? Oh, wow. It's a lot to go from, but I would say, as uh, John said, there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of inefficiencies in these institutions, and it's terrible, and we have to figure out a way to solve this. Well, my punk of the week, and I would take the arrest for it. I'd like to spit slap this this head of the congressional judiciary, the guy from California, Schiff. Schiff. This guy bothers me. And I physically, and I'll say it, I would physically slap him like a bitch that he is and take the arrest. That's who pisses me off. I, I would just go to jail for it. Probably they put me in jail a lot longer than the guy commit robberies, but I'd just like to <laughs> slap him. He doesn't even deserve a punch, Carlo. A bitch slap for the bitch. Just wait until he does and let him do it here. That way you can get all this information when, once he, uh, you know, because your defense can, once they pass that law, yeah. you'll know where his address is, where his family lives. <laughs> well, we want to thank you, John. It's been really great you got a brother you and your family yeah and uh you're true thank you very american much. hero and i'm honored that you're my friend and and uh you know we'll see we get together again another time anytime and, and, and I, I i implore everybody to go out and buy the book carlo all right so the book is sheep no more and it's available on amazon we'll put up a link to it uh if anyone was interested in purchasing it i know i will be uh you could find us we're on social media we're at one tough podcast on twitter bo is at bo Deedle on twitter and at the real bo Deedle on instagram you could also email us. Uh, our email address is one tough podcast at gmail.com. Check us out. We just uh, joined the Flick app. It's a community for uh, everyone that likes this podcast. You can get on there and discuss the episode, send us questions. So check that out, flickapp.com, and we'll see you next week.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 